One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. Welcome to Better Than Life, the episode by episode breakdown of Red Dwarf. I'm John and I'm rewatching the show for the first time in many, many years, especially for this podcast. And I'm Fergus, continuing a Red Dwarf rant I started when I was 9. Now joining John and me as our producer and embarrassment minimizer Alex. And as always a fan of the show who also happens to be professionally funny. This ep we're joined by Paul Foxcroft to chat series 1 episode 4 Waiting for God. Let's get out there and get on with it. It's a show about a man who's lost 3 million years in space. His company and evolved cat and a hologram he hates. Plus a fuzzy robot and a ship that's gone senile. We love the jokes and sci-fi stuff as well. Paul Foxcroft, you are not hiding anything. Your own website describes you as a writer, comedian, improviser, and liar. So, how dare you? And welcome to the podcast. How dare you? And it's nice to be here. So, Paul, more importantly than than everything else you've ever done, you're a huge fan of Red Dwarf. Where did it all begin for you? I was roughly 13, 14 when I started watching Red Dwarf along with my best my best mate Pete Larkin. I think had already watched some and suggested I watch it as well. And so I hopped on at the start of season three with the new set. Wow! Yeah. And Crichton as a permanent regular character and Hattie Hayridge as Holly. Spoilers for people watching along for the first time with this podcast. So I that that was what I thought the show was. All the production values of the time. Well, yeah, because they had a, they had a they got a budget. Oh yeah, and it was after season three, maybe even mid season four. I went back and I watched season one and two because I finally had access to them on VHS. Now you could just sort of summon whatever you want to look into your television. In the past, you had to go to a man, and he would sell you a little box with wheels in it, and then you had to put that box into a larger box in your home and make it sort of scream, and then that's how you'd watch. The earlier series, and you'd get three, three to a cassette, three episodes to a cassette. So you get was that two for a series? It's like if you want to stream something, but every time you stream it, you lose some shelf space. That's probably the easiest way to think of it for the younger generation. Yes, and a quite blocky device in your home has to do cardio. <laughs> and um, I remember watching season one at Pete's front room, and me going. Oh, we've got the wrong tape because <laughs> the title sequence is different. Yeah, it's a lot more austere, isn't it? My standard for the show was set by series three, and so yeah. I've always felt a bit weird about series one and two. There's some interesting stuff in there, but I think the show is purer in season one and two because it remembers what it is more so than the later series do, which is 
hell is being trapped for eternity in a room with your friends. Yes. But instead of friends, with some people you know that happens to be in space. And my feeling about this is, the for me, The Golden Age of Dwarf is season three, which is not to say I dislike one and two. It's just I have a different relationship with them. But season three, all the way through to... When does Chris Barry leave? Is that mid-seven? Seven, yeah. All the way to six. <laughs> season like, three, four, five, and six, I think, are great episodes. They play around with fun sci-fi concepts. Were they ever forgetting for too long that the show is principally about bickering and the sci-fi stuff is seasoning? And then I felt like post like seven and onwards, they sort of go, it's a sci-fi show. And I'm like, no, it isn't. Yeah, this is this is fast becoming a tradition that I will have once an episode, a mention of season eight and how no bugger watched it. But every episode does begin with Rimmer and Lister trapped in a, pe- in a cell together. Every episode in series eight starts with a few minutes of banter and bicker. True. And I've seen a, one of those episodes, maybe. Uh, and I seem to remember the episode started with them bickering in a cell, and I thought, oh, ho, 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 we're back on form, and then a dinosaur turned up. Yeah, no, we don't talk about the dinosaur. It's the bickering in the room. That's what we're looking at. I think there's a really good season eight episode that's a supercut of all the bickering scenes. The only thing I enjoyed about that that season was they brought back um, Captain Hollister, who, uh, just in my the head canon of the same actor, ergo the same character appears in everything else, he turns up in the director's cut of Aliens. A yes. very similar uniform. With a very similar tone. He's running, he's running LV426. He's got a very important job. He is. As important as, as Captain Sea of Red Dwarf. Yeah. And he also turns up as an obnoxious American tourist in one episode of Black Books. Uh, well remembered. He also turned up at a stand-up gig that Alex was doing the other day. Wait, really? Yeah. Uh, in Camden Town. Mac McDonald. He's also in The Fifth Element. And I had a joke about that, unfortunately. <laughs> he is in The Fifth Element. Is he one of the cops who gets his McDonald's order all over him? Yep. <laughs> Yes! He was UK-based when they filmed Red Dwarf as well. They mentioned yeah. that he was like one of only three Americans doing comedy in London, UK area, which is part of why he was cast. And the other guy's the talkie toaster. So who was the third one? I, I'm willing to bet it was Mike McShane. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Only because I know, I know Mike lived here at the time. Yeah, surely. Because uh, him and Karen were across, but I think he would have been too busy with his Sandy Toxic show and the Who's Line stuff. Mm, yeah, makes sense. Because they were contemporaries of that. If he's ever seen it, he's welcome on the podcast. I suspect he will have done. He's a big sci-fi geek. He loves his sci-fi, loves his fantasy. Can we talk about that a second? Because there, there are so many comedians and comedy fans who are also massive fans of sci-fi, and yet... The the adage, the known thing, is that sci-fi and comedy don't go together. Is that is that known? It's known insofar as it's the thing that executives for broadcasting corporations keep saying and then are ah. proved wrong when a good sci-fi mm-hmm. comedy comes out. I think it's one of those things where people go, people draw patterns that aren't from shitty amounts of data or from things that already conform to their expectations. So you could go, sci-fi and comedy don't mix. Look, here is Red Dwarf USA or whatever they called that project. Look, it's terrible. Uh, but then you could also go sci-fi and comedy do mix. Look, here's Red Dwarf UK edition. That's good. Sci-fi comedy is when it's failed. I think it's not failed because of the mixing of those genres. There's been other yeah. extenuating circumstances, like Thingy Henderson directing Hyperdrive, which could have been amazing. But he spent all their budget filming on film rather than video for some reason. And everyone, why are we? Why are you doing that? It's a sitcom, and he's ah, look amazing. But it doesn't because it's got the same set style as Red Dwarf and all that stuff. So it's it's a it's a, it's a weird one. I think one of the concerns with it is traditionally comedy shows tend towards lower budget than say a drama or a period drama or something like that, and sci-fi shows push the budget up because they require a lot of sets. Because unless you're very happy for every alien world to look a lot like Southern California, you need to start doing a lot of stuff. You need to have access to a lot of locations, depending on what you're doing. I'd argue that Red Dwarf has the capacity as a show 
I'm t- talking like we're going to reboot it, to be much more within budget, if only because it is effectively, it's a bottle episode of a show, or it was originally. Mm. It's only when they kind of go, well, we've already had this conversation that they start going off on Starbug a lot more uh, to go and do away missions to uh, locations that look like um, areas immediately around London. <laughs> I remember reading this in a magazine at the time. They encountered a lot of li- like planets with lava or goo on them, not water, because the special effects guys were like, a droplet of water is always a consistent size, but if we dup- if we drop the model Starbug into it, then it looks like a model because <laughs> yes. the water is too big. Yes. Mm. Uh, but if it's lava, you, don't, you won't notice... Because you're you, the general view. There's some geologists at home going, "Well, my immersion's been ruined." It's also about the speed things move as well as the size, because bigger liquids should move slower, and so goo and gels and la- like lava yeah. move slower, and so there's more of a weight of impact if you're trying to scale things up. Yeah. So, Paul, going back to that first experience, was it love at first sight with season three, or did you oh, take God, a few yeah. episodes? You did, yeah. I was, I was on board, baby. I feel like I watched episode one at my house now. I would have gone around to Pete's house that evening, so asking a bunch of questions about the thing, because he'd watch one and two as they'd gone out live, and then, you know, we would no access to the VHSs for a while. So I was kind of getting some understanding about the lore. Also, it's, it's weird. I have, I have this experience the most with Ghostbusters. My parents took me to see Ghostbusters when I was at the cinema when I was four... And then I didn't watch it again until I was in my mid-teens, and Pete, Pete Larkin and I wore out a VHS of Ghostbusters. <laughs> then I watched it again in my late 20s, and I was like, oh, oh, this is hilarious. And I did not know. Yeah, I didn't realise it was a comedy. Because without the context for a lot of the jokes in Ghostbusters, or the frame of reference, I, in my late 20s, realised that a 200-foot-tall marshmallow man is a funny idea. But up until then, it's sort of gone, oh, I guess that's how New York is, <laughs> without really questioning it. Like, I hadn't had that thought consciously. I just, it just didn't, I didn't have the context to go, well, that's an aberrant, silly, uh, hyperinflated, oh, what a stupid thing for a ghost to be, ha, 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 waka, waka. Yeah, that's just what scares Americans. Yeah. I had the same thing with Red Dwarf, where like, I could, I could have, in my teens, I could have quoted you season three. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to identify 30% of the jokes, uh, or things that are funny. Uh, it's only like having rewatched it years later, I'm like, oh, that's a really good bit. That's a really good bit. Uh, a friend of mine calls this Simpsons thing, where you watch a classic piece of cinema and you laugh because you got a joke from The Simpsons that you watched 10 years ago that stuck in your mind as just a scene. But now when you watch the film, you're like, oh, the thing was funny. And you laugh at the film, even though you're laughing at a TV show or younger you watched. I watched 2001 A Space Odyssey long after I'd seen Red Dwarf and about a little ways in went, Oh my god! <laughs> it's a joke! <laughs> Holly, weirdly, that character in that sitcom was written to be funny. Oh! There's tons of that there for me. So sit, sit down to watch it for the first time. Was was your gateway the sci-fi, or was your gateway the comedy? I think it, it was both. I, I was a, a kid who enjoyed comedy. I was a kid who enjoyed sci-fi. I don't know that any particular... I don't know that either would have been a particularly more convincing lure... Uh, for me, not that my friend Pete was trying to get me in the back of a van or something. Like, <laughs> they, not like he'd left the, D- the VHS of Red Dwarf under a cardboard box propped up with a stick. <laughs> There's three appeals here, right? Sci-fi, comedy, and your mate is like, I like this thing. Watch it and like it. The bait of the trap was um, a fun shared experience with a friend that happened to be sci-fi and comedy. It was all pluses. Yeah, I can't think of a single negative that was presented to me. Red Dwarf seemed like a win for young Paul Falkcroft. It also shares some some DNA with other sitcoms that we loved as kids. Like there's a li- this episode we're going to talk about in this episode especially 
has some young ones, certainly Rick Mail, Edward Edmondson, Clash, Bottom, mm, Stoll, yeah, yeah. come until later, but still there's a bit of that in the Lister Rimmer relationship. There's even a bit, there I say it, of Black Adder in this episode. And these are sitcoms I was aware of and loved before I got to Red Dwarf. And so there was already a, the comfort blanket of recognisable comedy to, to enjoy. No, I think you're right. The young ones thing particularly, there is a tone of British sitcom from the alternative base. Mm. There's a tone that is present in some of what Red Dwarf does. They deny they're a part of that movement, though, don't they? They do, but they're wrong, I think, because they, they are addressing they're addressing some of the same stuff as well, but with, from a very different with a very different perspective. I think you don't get so much in Red Dwarf is that in the young ones, and then writ larger in like Filthy Rich and Catflap, and then writ larger in Bottom, is hyperviolence, Tom and Jerry hyperviolence, with real people. Uh, doesn't really show up in Red Dwarf. There's little bits of it with like, oh, it's a season five one where Lister gets a really big head that bursts. And there's little bits of it with earlier in this series, I think Rimmer gets somebody else's arms for a oh, while. Yeah. There's also the squalor that they have in common. Yeah. yeah. There's a dark sort of cynical sarcasm to a lot of the humour. There's yeah. elaborately crafted insults and turns of phrase. And there's also, there's that thing that comes out of a lot of 80s or early 90s humour, which is the system doesn't work. And yeah. in the young ones, that's visited very much directly by the police turning up and being overtly racist and ultraviolent or insane Tory characters turning up. But in this, it manifests as the bureaucracy of the ship and the infrastructure of the ship. I think what's different between, you know, taking Bottom and Blackadder, Red Dwarf, you've got Lister, who's a character who is kind and who you could actually picture yourself spending time with and enjoying his company. And I'm not sure you could say that really for any of the characters in those other shows. Maybe that's why Grant and Naylor didn't feel they were part of that. I, th- I think there's a, there's a good argument to be made there, but then Lis- then Rimmer and, and the cat, who I yeah. don't really like as a character. I really like Danny John Jewels. And I think, and certainly early doors, I don't think they have any idea whatsoever to do with the cat. The cat comes with his own later series, but for right now, the cat is... is, I I found the cat irritating in a way that I couldn't articulate when I first watched the show. I think there's a better way of using the cat as a sort of Alice figure to explore interesting sci-fi goofy stuff. But in actuality, the cat is there to be a literal cat and to express self-obsession and self-interest at the expense of everything else around it. Again, that's one of my notes for, for this episode. Where where he could have been actually centrally involved in the in the law. Yes. They chose to have him just go, ah, I don't care. Well, here's the thing. They kind of, they exactly do that. They, they, the, your man says to the cat, uh, the, presumably the cat has known this, cat, this guy all of his life, and he goes, I'm dying. And the cat goes, I want to tell you about my investigating feet, which is an insane sentence anyway, but faced with the old character who appears to be like bedbound, so it's fair to presume that the cat, the only person who know he exists, has been feeding him for an extended period of time. For the cat to just be like blow that off and go, let me tell you about my feet, um, is not only psychotic but a cheap gag. It's a block. It's a no. It's a no where a yes and would have been much more interesting. I think there's a way of writing this scene where the cat is invested in the death of the father figure. He's the only person he's known for his entire life, except for the last 18 weeks where he's known a dead man and a smelly man and a severed head in a television (laughs) who he has developed almost no relationship with. I think there's a way of honouring that relationship 
in a way that is interesting for the cat and also it being funny. I just think it's a harder script to write. There's another scene in this one, actually. Where, is it in this one where Rimmer runs into the cat in a corridor? With the yo-yo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and the cat has a yo-yo. And the gag is these two have nothing in common and nothing to say to each other. But the actuality is they have nothing to say to each other. So the cat has a bit about not understanding a yo-yo. And Rimmer just makes some noises and backs away. It's a bizarre performance. It's kind of brilliant, it's but it's really weird. It's so weird. But I really feel like they're desperate to... They're really running from developing the cat as a character in any way, shape or form. Beyond, what if a man behaved like a cat does? And also, um, for no conceivable reason, is affecting a fairly compelling American accent. Did you like cat later on the more cat was kind of humanized yes. in uh, in context he's humanized by hanging out with these humans yeah. but but probably actually that the writers just relaxed the character a little more as yeah. the series went on well, it wouldn't surprise me if danny john jules had gone can my character care about something please <laughs> yeah sure. as a performer because that's my issue with the cat which i had struggled to, I, I struggled to articulate when i was a kid my issue with the cat is the cat is fundamentally unaffected by all stimuli and that's not interesting mm. It's a it's a fun it's a good it's a fun laugh a couple of times and that's why in the later series when the cat is unaffected by stuff you're like oh that's funny because the cat actually is will respond to stuff even if it's like getting scared. I remember there's a good gag in the later series where they're like we, we, the cat's they're like we've got to get out of here and the cat's like yeah 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 you don't have to tell me twice and is panicked and they're like we need to go and he's like oh sorry you did need to and then leaves it, the cat understands the stakes but is a, a type of idiot. That's an interesting thing, actually, the type of idiot thing. Everyone in this show is stupid in different ways. And that, I remember having a conversation years and years ago with an American friend of mine. He was talking about why he didn't think Red Dwarf worked in the US. Uh, and I'd said, oh, it's because America tried to fix it, but it worked already. So it was like taking a functioning car and going, well, this isn't shoes. <laughs> Let's make it shoes. That's weird. It doesn't hit 80 miles an hour. <laughs> but the thing he was saying, well, it doesn't have the archetypes you get in American sitcoms. And I was like, for example? And he was like, well, like, if you look at Friends, Monica's borderline OCD, Ross is a big nerd, Joey's like the dumb one, Chandler's the funny one. And I was like, yeah, it's because in this sitcom, they're all the dumb one, but in different ways. They're all the self-obsessed one, but in different ways. In this one, they're characters. And in the ones you're describing, they're archetypes that evolve into characters over time because the writers run out of things. Where in this, they sort of start off more as characters. Like, all, they share a lot of things that in the American pantheonic sitcom construction model would be apportioned to one character. And I, I've never seen the US version of Red Dwarf. I've no interest in it at all. In the same way that I'd never... I don't know. I don't want to see the decomposing bodies of loved ones it's getting a surprising amount of airtime for how bad it is like is it we do mention it every yeah, episode because yeah. i think i think people seem to be quite upset about it like it should have worked it should have been mm. like the american office right but with the american office that got retuned at the end of season the heart it was a heart it was a mid-season pickup so it was only six or seven yes. six or eight episodes in season one and that got retuned in such a way that made it really work in this format they had and yeah. really work with the american market but that was in response to, like, I think Greg Daniels is a very good producer. And it was him and Brent Forrester going, we're doing the thing we should be doing, but it isn't quite working. Oh, let's change let's change this and see how we do. And then that first change happened to work. They did the same thing with Parks and Rec as well. Also, that, that self-loathing thing is, I think that's a, a, a British comedy archetype, right? Mm. Um, there's someone's completely self-loathing, but doesn't necessarily recognise that fact about themselves. But I can't think of any... Um, America, 
Americans. Maybe it's always sunny in Philadelphia, but that's mm. that's relatively recent. Maybe my name is Earl. Oh, never really watched it. That was more about scuzziness, really. I think. And, yeah. And and ch- being a chancer, and and he wins. That's the thing to remember. Like the problem with the Red Dwarf thing, as I've gone into before, is is the the last human has to be a realist or a pessimist. In America, they made him an optimist. Lister is socially optimistic. He's a humanist, certainly, but he's not... He doesn't assume that his life is going to turn out okay. Yeah. That's a dream he has. The whole idea of going back to Earth is nice, but I think it's never really... I don't think it's ever stated in the series. It's something to do so he doesn't kill himself. Yes. He. They're never getting back there. (laughs) And even if he did, what's there? All right, a couple of quickfire ones for you, Paul, and then one brain melter. Shoot. Quickfire question number one. Have you got a favourite series? I think my favourite series probably is three because there's there's some really good episodes in three, but also it was my first go on the show. Yeah. I think maybe the best series is... I think the best series might be four. Mm-hmm. Is the four the one with... Um, I can't remember the episode. The Justice World. Yes. Yes. Is, yeah. Yeah. How about episode? I mean, I've already said Justice, and partly because I believe it was filmed on the same set as Games Master. That's an episode I come back to a lot. I really liked, or I couldn't tell you why, I really liked Legion in season five. I've just remembered. Legion Legion getting a lot of love, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think think it's a really funny episode, but it also has, like, actual good... It's a good sci-fi shtick to play around with okay so the brain melting <laughs> question then you are rebooting red dwarf for a generation that needs vhs explained to them who do you cast right now here's i got a couple of, i have a couple of questions yeah go for it one how good is my budget oh whatever you want okay i'm I, i'm trying to think of british contemporary british performers you don't have to feel bound to britain if uh, if that helps oh i don't want to i don't want to make american red dwarf by mistake no, okay, Rimmer, uh, Mike Wozniak. That's a lock. I'm locking that in. Can I ask, is, is Mike Wozniak because of that dual status play thing? A little bit, but Mike Mike is a consummate goofball and a super nice dude. But he's also, he can do the most ridiculous things straight with no crack, uh, no crack in the veneer. And he has a very good face and demeanour for officious prick, which Mike isn't. Mike's a lovely bloke. But he can play a fish's prick really well. And I think he'd have a fun time with it as well. The cat. I might go with Moan Rizwan. Uh-huh, yes. I think he'd bring a really delightful, unhinged weirdness to the role while also being able to emote and give us some character depth. Which, again, I'm the, I don't want to make this clear. I have no issue with Danny John Jules as a performer. I've seen him do loads of stuff. I think he's f***ing brilliant. I think in this, his hands are tied for quite a while by production choices. I, I don't know why I keep circling around Nish as Lister, which is oh not a great not a great fit. Just because I think Nish is a natural enthusiast. He's got a really good gear shift between well observed political satire and exacerbated frustrated alarm. And I don't know if you've ever seen Nish do Taskmaster. Yeah, but he also does dealing with the fact that he's incompetent in a very entertaining <laughs> manner. And then oh, who would I put in as Holly? I don't know. Who have other people suggested, by the way? What have, what have been popular picks? Has anyone come up a lot? Nish has come up in every episode so far. Really? In what capacity? As Rimmer. Oh, I can see that. Who else Who else have people gone for for the cat? We have had Moe and for the cat, haven't we? Really? As well. Was it Beck? Beck Hill? I also picked uh, Bob Mortimer for Holly. Oh, I was going to... When I think Holly, I automatically think Hattie Herridge. Yeah. And I just thought, do you know what? I'd love to see Beck in a black box space. Mm. Presumably just a polo neck on. But Bob Mortimer as Holly would be 
Great. <laughs> well, actually, here's what we're going to do. Forget everything I just said. Uh, <laughs> season five, season four, Taskmaster cast. Done. Remind us. Nish, Bob, Mark Watson, Ashley B, Sally Phillips, wow. Greg, and um, Little Alex Horn. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that'd work. And do it like rep. Every episode, shake them all up and everyone gets a new role. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that can only be successful. That, yeah. yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. I think we've fixed Red Dwarf. All right, let's move on to the episode. No, no, fine. Fergus is going to give us a precy to remind us what the hell happens to the boys and the dwarf. Thanks, John. Series one, episode four, Waiting for God. Holly's recap joke is some lamp shading for the last episode, which is nice. Turns out Lister didn't pass the chef's exam and the balance of power remains the same. Scene one, Rimmer noses his way into Captain Hollister's records, deriving much glee from the cap's description of Lister and much chagrin from the Cap's critique of him. We learn that there's something out there floating in space near the ship, and Holly brings it in for inspection. Rimmer is beside himself with the idea that it's an alien vessel. So excited is he, in fact, with meeting a Quagar warrior, that he completely overlooks the truth, that the quarantined alien vessel is in fact a garbage pod, jettisoned from Red Dwarf some time ago. Holly knew this all along, and is torturing Rimmer, where Lister spots the truth about the pod's provenance and decides to continue torturing Rimmer. The episode ends, interestingly, with Rimmer's full bathetic reaction happening off-screen, interrupting the end credits with a fourth wall breaking, it's a smegging garbage pod. Meanwhile, we see another side of faith being played out in the bowels of the ship. Deep in storage, Cat's last remaining family member has lost his faith in Cloister, who surely should have led the cats to Fushil by now, it's been three million years. Sure enough, Dave God Complex Lister turns up, literally plays God, and makes the dying old cat happy in his last faith-restored moments, much to young cat's psychopathic lack of interest. Oh, and remember the story of the cat arcs launching from Red Dwarf to find the promised land, because that'll come back into the story in about 30 years. Paul, as a globally renowned DM, yes. what do you think of the lore building in this episode? I'm torn. I love lore building, and I like learning deep history of stuff, but what we learn is, here's a load of detail. It don't matter. <laughs> it matters to one character who dies seconds after we meet him. Which is, it's sort of a funny joke, but it feels like a rug pull. They introduce a lot of interesting s- stuff, like the idea of books that you smell. Yeah, I love that. Uh, which I think is a fun sci-fi thing, but why would they be shaped like books? The smells would mash together on the pages. It's not a good no, way of no, storing no. smells. The, the artifice is crumbling already. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 good enough. It's good enough for the bit, right? And that's that's a fun little thing to watch happen. It's a nice little bit of sci-fi. What? How would another culture do a thing? I've had an idea. Good. Have no more. <laughs> I like that. I like that, and there's elements of it. And I like that. I like the little sequences of Lister coming to terms with the fact that he is inadvertently positioned himself with no intention to become the false god of an entire species and that many of them have died as a result of this i think it's very interesting to suggest that over the course of a species evolution from domestic cats all the way through to hominid cats that they have somehow managed in cat form to maintain the oral tradition quite a complicated story (laughs) and the only thing that's changed is they've gotten some of the proper nouns wrong I think that's an incredible achievement for cats to maintain that. 
throughout the evolution because we did that didn't we? remember the story that all the monkeys had that we now know like, that's not a thing <laughs> that's not a thing there is spare lore in the books isn't there about how the cats learnt English from watching films in the Red Dwarf cinemas and all that stuff but there's still plot holes in that because surely they'd know Holly then well that's it I think Holly is a much more plausible god uh, god figure or at least be interesting to find out like that Holly was an archangel the archangel Michael <laughs> to Cloister's Godhead <laughs> or what have you. It's also interesting that in the illustrations in the book are quite sort of stained glassy, Christian inspired. I think it'd be more interesting and more interesting if the cat faith had been more like Zoroasterism or, uh, I don't know, something something cooler from Mesopotamia. I don't, the Baha'i I don't know the or something like that. Yeah. Mm. Or if the cat, it had just, if the cats had somehow learned about Bast, the Egyptian goddess of cats, that would have fitted thematically. Again, it is the satire of certain aspects of religion are ludicrous. I say that as a card-carrying atheist who thinks all religion is dumb. Come at me! But no, it's, I think it's a nice way of pointing out. There are, I think one of the biggest problems I have with religion is the excesses and hypocrisies of, the, of churches in, in general. Not just the Catholic Church, but seeing as I am a recovering Catholic, let's use them as an example. And the, 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 the concept of holy wars uh, in the name of a god of peace is uh, wild. And yet that's happened a lot. And again, that's what we hit into in this. I think Lister becoming aware that he is inadvertently responsible for a series of holy wars and then two mass exoduses, one of which immediately caused the deaths of everyone involved, is a lot to heap onto his plate. I would love an episode where Lister just breaks. Yeah, he doesn't seem overly burdened by it, does it? His, his, main, his main response is the, the colour of the, the hat being wrong on both sides. Well, I think he has to. If he accepts, if he if he lets that through the armour, then he would just crumple it on his head on himself and die. But he's using what happy-go-lucky scouseness to, to get through that. He just quite rightly not take responsibility for the actions of thousands of yeah. people who've mis- willfully misinterpreted him to serve their own ends. But then, and then actually, it come, again, comes good at the end of the episode. Like He doesn't really want to be God. He doesn't want to be the gods of the cats. There's nothing in that for him, but then he pretends to be for the sake of making an old cat's life nice for the last minute of it and it's nice to see that i don't know i like seeing that side of lister uh, but i think yeah, you've got to compare that with the side of the cat that is present in that scene which you rightly called out as being completely psychopathic yeah lister makes undermining jokes a lot like one of the first jokes he makes out of stasis three million years he's been in stasis i've still got that library book yeah right undermining that's that's good some somehow i i do agree with you the cat in this episode is it's, it's, it's almost stretched to a bizarre level how little, yes. yeah, how few FC gives. Yeah, and it's not like if the gag was the cat doesn't understand these concepts, that's a different joke. It's not. He just doesn't give a And that's not really a character. Like I said, I much prefer the cat in later seasons when they yeah. know what to do with the cat. Probably the trouble with having a religious subplot is it's the minute he cares, you're writing a completely different show, aren't you? about any of this you know you have to take all of the deep stuff seriously so instead they're taking none of it seriously and consequently it does feel a little bit like well what was the point but again it comes back to the cat sort of exists without without some contexts but with others and there i can't even now look at it and go well it makes sense that the cat knows this concept but not this one it's also really interesting to me i think this comes up in the previous episode the cat doesn't know how to use the food dispensing machines until Rimmer tells him how to get five fish. But the cat has been on Red Dwarf for his entire... What's the cat been eating? His dad ate his own feet. But that's also... That's a weird... That's another weird bit. That's a my dad, dad a joke. It is, but it's also like... But it's played straight. Like, that happened. It's like, my dad was a jelly brain, which is a really interesting way of 
the spout like my dad was dumb and goes yes that's why he ate his own feet and the cat again is like yeah that did wasn't that wasn't really a thing that was relevant to me uh, the implication is you watched your father self cannibalize <laughs> and you were like seems legit maybe it's that maybe it's the thing we were talking about where you don't appreciate why a 200 foot marshmallow man is funny the cat <laughs> didn't have the context to understand that his father eating his own feet was weird or is it about I, I, do you know what when i watched it i was a kid and i took cat as being the the child of the situation for whom religion isn't important for whom teachings aren't as important as when you get older and certainly closer to death but yeah, however you look at it, it's it's a it's a tricky character moment to get round. Maybe the explanation is staring us in the face and he's just been completely desensitized. He's actually deeply, deeply traumatized by all this stuff that's happened in his lifetime. That is the most plausible response, is that he's just seen horrors. Yeah. And this persona is like he's like this is a, such a niche reference. The cat you know, is like the Batman the Batman of Zurenar. The backup personality that Bruce Wayne has created in his head in case he's ever in case he ever goes mad to take over and fight crime. And his obsession with his suits and how am I looking? How am I looking now? How am I looking now? It's just all self soothing. It's it's his only way that he can control and centre himself in a chaotic universe is is just to look sharp. I'd love to think that is the case. I think the cat's just not a very good character to start off with, but I from now on would believe that the intent of the writers was to introduce the idea that the cat is working through a lot of trauma and the only avenue left to him is hyper-narcissism to ground this scene out. But I think he's just an underdeveloped character. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wasn't this the second episode to be filmed? Oh, really? Like they thought this was going to be this was going to wrap up the yeah. cat god cloister thing in a kind of two part first and second episode. But they they advanced future echoes to episode two because it was more sci fi and yeah. and got the audience into that more. Yeah, future echoes was the fourth or fifth written yeah. episode, and then it was um, filmed fourth before the studio audience but then they shifted the order to broadcast and this was the one written second so I wonder how much more sense this episode makes tonally were you to watch it straight after the pilot because the other thing that freaks me out a little bit about this episode on this watch is how little audience laughter there is in it the audience don't seem to be enjoying this episode did you guys notice that? at the beginning I clocked how weird it was to have a laugh track 
because that's just not a thing that turns up in a lot of media I consume these days. But I also was like, that's weird. What a what a weird laugh track beat to keep in because the audience really lowballed Holly's gag. Mm, exactly. And then I'd sort of, as laugh tracks do, it sort of faded into the background for me. But I'm, I'm now tempted to go back and have a listen to how indifferent the audience were to the content of this episode. The other thing this would make sense as a second episode of, sorry about my grammar, is the no aliens rule. Yeah. Introduce the prospect of aliens in episode two, or near the beginning of the series anyway. Even episode four in, in series one out of 13 yeah. series, that's fine. Oh, true, but let's. But this is written from the perspective of people who are, made, are thinking, we might get a second series out of this. Right. Um, they're not, this is another thing. Another thing with Red Dwarf is it wasn't built, the lore of Red Dwarf wasn't built with sustaining 13, like six seasons of the movie mm. out of it. <laughs> And it's what it's it's one of those things where like, there's enough world building to justify season one, and then everything else is sort of bolted on. And they've done it, I think, by doing it that way, they've done it very well. But let's not imagine they had a big world building document on day one, because also I'm not sure that's how people wrote sitcoms or sci-fi in the eighties. But the, nothing about this is though, right? That you didn't tend to get existentialism in comedy, <laughs> not in not in mainstream. Well, maybe BBC Two on a Friday night. Yeah, but I think you, I think in the the exactly I was about to say stuff in that slot, it would it would sneak in. Uh, a lot more so in the 90s but that's kind of where I argue they are uh, if not from the same school then sort of shopping at the same store as people like The Young Ones et al because those were the shows that did sneak in nihilism, existentialism and highfalutin $10 psychological concepts into the mainstream by hiding them behind a funny beard and a Lexi Sale (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm very surprised Lexi Sale never turned up in Red Dwarf to be honest But fundamentally the situation of the comedy never changing is that was very much of its time, wasn't it? I mean, so that's comparatively recent that the situation has changed. And that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of what makes the American office run in a way that the UK office had to finish after two series if it was going to still be any good because you couldn't do very much with with that version of that story. Keeping them in the same place, yeah, Yeah. socially. But I think that's... but. In that way, all sitcoms become existential. British sitcoms mm. do, because it is about the repeat and the ennui and the absurdism of repeating the same thing in the same context um, and nothing ever changing. Um, but this episode, I don't know, maybe I'm going way too far into it, but this first scene has uh, the line, if I eat roast beef 11 times, would you say I'm constantly eating roast beef? I... I I started to feel a little bit of anxiety the more I thought about that. <laughs> like, genuinely, no, no, but but does it though? Like, what is what is constancy? And I did get into a bit of an existential funk over roast beef, um, but it is a good line as well. Yeah, there's a lot of other ways of applying that. Rimmer's balked logic to that is well, he's presumably gone to the toilet daily, minimum. Ergo, he's constantly going to the toilet. Yeah, but it, it, it's it, it's a nice willfully ignorant reframing of the issues by Rimmer to suit his to suit defending his psyche from any aspect of critique. His staggering lack of self awareness, isn't it? But it's, it's willful. Yeah. It's not lack of it's not lack of self awareness. He knows where the mirror is. <laughs> he just refuses he will to do acknowledge anything it. to avoid yeah. looking into the mirror. And if he does look into the mirror by accident, he will deny the veracity of the mirror. To know what he's running from, he has to, I think he has to be able to see it. But this lends credence to the psychological or psychiatric theory of the cat's uh, lack of apparent empathy, doesn't it? Well, maybe Oh, maybe there's an argument to be made. A friend of mine, a lad called Ben Vandervelt, had an old stand-up bit where he used to kind of go through the Winnie the Pooh characters and go, each of these people are an easily, ident- easily identifiable, medically recognised psychological condition. 
I wonder if we could do the same with the cast of Red Dwarf. <laughs> Very probably, yeah. Where, yeah, you've got Crichton trapped in this low-status, servile role, desperate to rebel and finding ludicrously small ways of doing so. Rimmer is trapped, terrified of the horror of being him. The cat is grotesquely self-obsessed. Holly is sort of, I guess, sort of experiencing senility. And and um, and Lister is Scouse. <laughs> I can say I can say that because I'm from Liverpool. <laughs> I, I I find Holly a little bit fascinating in this in this context in the context of this episode. He knows from the very beginning that it is a garbage pod. He is torturing Rimmer. That's not senility. Yes. That's something else. That's indignation. It's not, it, it's not senility in the context of a person. In the context of a supercomputer, it, it might well be. Yeah. Because it's, I think it's well without his operational remit from three million years prior. But <laughs> as it, I think he's gone a bit weird. His entire remit is to keep the crew alive. Yeah. And to keep the crew alive, maybe the torturing of Rimmer is key to making Rimmer more angry to keep Lister more sane. Yeah. <laughs> maybe there is it's, a logic. Got, it's got overtones of I have no mouth yet I must scream. <laughs> the Harlan Ellison mm. uh, torture diary of the last five surviving humans who have been transmuted into weird forms to entertain an AI. Who will never let them die? And then, and then Lister joins in on the torture, and that yeah. starts to make much more sense. It, it makes more sense to me as Lister's prank yeah. than Holly's. Ah, well, thing is, I think it does make sense if you look back at the first scene in which River is being an absolute <laughs> to Holly. Yes. Who then goes? All right, then here's ah, oh, there's a thing, there's an exciting thing. Mm. Oh, oh, good, he's taken the bait. I think it is just Commodore Garden revenge. But we never have, if we never have a close up on Holly. Like in, in in future echoes, yeah. he gives Rimmer the big beehive hairdo. There is a direct link from Rimmer insulting Holly. Holly going, "You what?" Yeah. and then getting the bad hair. Well, actually, that, now that this is in sequence, Holly does have form for messing about with Rimmer. Yeah, and it actually condenses and becomes more efficient. His cruelty as the series goes on. Yeah, which ah, in another series that would be horrifying. The idea of the last surviving human and a cat and a dead man trapped on a ship with an AI that's just torturing them. Mm. This, that's that sounds like a, a horror film I'd find on yeah. Netflix or or just Twitter. <laughs> Does that doesn't really what doesn't really work as a joke? But any joke where you kind of like here's a thing and it, it's that's what Twitter's like sort of works. I will laugh. You said torture. You said in close, but yeah, Twitter works. Here's a fun question. Does Rimmer play D&D Warhammer? He might, Rimmer must no, be into no. sci-fi. Then why does he say Quagar? Yeah, Rimmer doesn't... Here's the thing. Rimmer doesn't like sci-fi or things like that, but he's... he's. I think Rimmer, Rimmer plays Risk. This is learned in season three. Yeah. And Rimmer plays Risk in the same way that other people play things that matter. Uh, <laughs> I'm from the school that Risk is a board game. Uh, up there with Monopoly. John and I have lost days and days to Risk in our youth, and I I, I would love hey, to have them. Hey, we've all played. We've all played Risk. There's just better games out there for scratching that itch, and that actually scratch that itch. Let's that's not what this podcast is. Um, <laughs> sign up to my newsletter, and I'll <laughs> scream into the void about board games. Uh, where was I going with this? So Rimmer plays Risk. I don't think Rimmer plays D and D. I don't think Rimmer plays. That played, would have played World of Warcraft or anything like that. But I think Rimmer would have been a prime target for the conspiracy nut uh, angle of the reason you're not succeeding is because um, the sun is too hot now? <laughs> or the earth is flat and there's people who want it. And, and anything in that lineup up to and probably including the anti-Semitic point of no return with all conspiracy theories. Rimmer is a prime candidate for Andrew Tate's marketing. <laughs> 
This episode contains the first of several references to Doug Naylor's favourite film, Alien. Which is notable because this is a series where can- canonically there are no aliens. Mm. Right? Yeah. And maybe that's deliberate, though. That's the whole point. He says the, 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 a thing on your face and clearly does a mime of a face hugger from the alien yeah. saga. Well, that's, I think the, the Alien, the movie, is, I think, probably the best haunted house movie we've made as a species. As opposed to all the gazelles out there filming art house cinema. Rimmer brings up Aliens at least, probably at least once a series as a thing, and is made fun of for it, which again ties into my Rimmer would be a conspiracy nut theory. I think it also ties into the religion elements. Like Aliens, Rimmer is looking for aliens in the way that some people would look at a deity to fix the fact that he's dead. He wants resurrection, he wants a new body, and he thinks aliens are going to give it to him because Rimmer wouldn't put that faith in a god, but he's putting his faith in an alien race he made up that looked like the carcasses of chickens because he doesn't understand what the trash pods for the ship look like. Because he never worked in garbage disposal. He didn't. As Lister says. I've some other issues with that. Like, he, surely he would recognise some of the, the, the bits on the pod. Like, if it's got, like, a USB port for example, or like, a, <laughs> I don't know what they had in the future, in the future in the 80s, like um, three pin XLR port at the back or whatever, like, you'd go, that's what it's got, a kit space for a kettle leak. Yeah, but if he's, a, if he's a conspiracist, he probably thinks that, you know, NASA stole USB technology from the Quagars. Yeah, that's very true, of course. I mean, it, it, I like I like the thing about the lettering, but I don't like that it's that Lister sees it and Rimmer doesn't. Yeah. Unless they're saying that Lister is a more literate character. But he, rec- he recognises the lettering and not the shape of the object, which is interesting. Uh, but also, I worked out where the Quagar's name comes from, and it's because Rimmer has, in the scene where Lister goes in there to get the chicken carcass out, on the wall, under the observation window, Rimmer has presumably had the scutters put this there. There is a... I can't think, a transposition cipher of the symbols on the side of the thing and what letters he thinks they correspond to. And I, so I think he's transliterated that as one of the words. is like garbage is probably Quagars based on... It'll be the standard code-breaking thing of like the most common letter is probably E, which would be fine if you assumed aliens use <laughs> a the romantic l- alphabet. <laughs> but it's, like, it's a very shitty attempt by Rimmer, which seems appropriate for a second technician to translate a first contact experience like that yeah i I think quagar is perfectly pitched it's exactly the thing he'd come up with it's telling of a man who's come to a conclusion and then has gone i've come to enough conclusions (laughs) that's 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 what i'm running no more conclusions from here thank you yes it's the entirely the wrong kind of confidence it's the insistence on there being two a's is yeah. what I love about it. Yeah. He's, he, he acknowledges that he's made it up, yeah. but nevertheless, there is a correct way of saying it. <laughs> I think he, I think he's tricked himself into maybe not a hundred percent realizing he's made it up. Like he's made up the system by which he's got there, and then has gone, oh well, I've proven this. Yes, that's that's real logic. Yeah. Yeah, it's like me making my own ruler and then committing to the idea that I'm eight feet tall because <laughs> I've measured myself. And just conveniently forgetting the first step of that is fictionalizing a scale. Well, on that note, I think I think you've 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 given us so much to think about and, and, and opened my eyes certainly to a, a, a new way of looking at the characters. A very refreshing perspective. Thank you so so much for being on this podcast. You're welcome. What are you referring to? I don't remember anything I've said. It's a couple of factors <laughs> about about Rimmer and Lister and their relationship. Mainly the fact that they're all stupid. I'd not thought of it in terms of intellect i'd only ever thought of it in terms of self-awareness and and positivity or negativity of outlook but actually the idea that rimmer is pretending to be clever and and that pretension feeds so much good comedy that i'm gonna watch it through that prism now 
Yeah. I've, I've always, in my mind, equated... I've always assumed that like Rip, Rip, Chris Barry and, and Rimmer as a character are sort of drinking from the same fountain as Oliver Hardy. There is a word for this character. I can't think what it is. There's quite a lot of Rimmer's... I love comedy nomenclature. There's a, a lovely type of joke called a bull, a term that was coined by Sid Caesar on uh, your show of shows, Later Caesar's Hour in the US, which was a statement made by a character that's intended to boost their status, but actually makes them look like a fucking idiot. Oh, nice. My favourite one of those turns up in... Um, Happy Gilmore, where Sheila McGavin <laughs> says, "I eat pieces of shit like you for breakfast." You eat, you eat shit for, for breakfast? breakfast? I no. <laughs> yeah, but it's one of those. Rimmer's, Rimmer's got a lot of things, things like that in it. And there's some other good examples in I, one of my favourite movies of all time is Clue, the Tim Curry-led Cluedo adaptation, which shouldn't work but does. That's brilliant. Um, unless some people legitimately don't like it, and I can respect that. I do. I think it's great. How could you dislike? I don't know. It's a, I think it's a very good movie. Really, really fun. But um, there's a good few lines of that ilk, like particularly Colonel Mustard in that has some great... I genuinely think it's that I don't need, any, I don't need anybody else's help to look stupid <laughs> without realising what he's saying. Yeah. Rimmer's all about that, yeah. Yeah. iPlayer tends to do a bull every now and again. When they try to pre-see sitcoms, this is something we're doing at the end of each episode, just, just for the sake of having it documented, frankly, and having a, a reaction documented to it. The BBC iPlayer description for this episode of Red Dwarf. Cult space comedy series following the escapades of the crew of the interstellar mining ship Red Dwarf. Lister learns, in inverted commas, cat writing and discovers some amazing facts. End of praise. So what do you think? It's neither wrong nor accurate. <laughs> right, that's what I've been saying. It's a, a team of co-workers find a new pet, but discover that keeping it is more trouble than it's worth. Alien. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the opposite. I mean, this is, to be fair, the, the lightest description we've had. This, this almost sounds like it could be a comedy, which is nice. Yeah. But some amazing facts. Why not? What amazing facts does he learn? See Dick run. <laughs> run, Dick, run. We're logging guests' favourite moments from each episode because I think it's an important thing to do. Do you have one for this episode? For this episode? Oh, I think I think my favourite moment is Lister pretending to be Christ to appease an old an old man. Is it the shot specifically where he comes in bathed uh, in... No, actually, I remember thinking, like, why... The thing is that we're irritating with that. There's diegetic music for no reason when he comes into that door. There's organ... There's well, and coral. the light and the smoke. Yeah. None of that was there none of that is set up but also if you think of a show and i'm pulling one up the top of my head arrested development would have done the same joke but they would have spent 20 seconds mm. split over the previous five minutes setting up um mm. we have to leave this smoke machine here or these <laughs> lights are malfunctioning yeah. oh no the, this organ is here i'll rest it here i'll put a bowling ball on top make sure it doesn't fall <laughs> and they'd give you that and then you'd see it happen, and That's I'd enjoy it more. But in actuality, it's just that joke is happening because it's funny, but it doesn't work in world. But I think the, my favourite moment is the, the, of the thing is, we get to see what I think of as like proper Lister, which is that he's just doing a nice thing for somebody because he can. Yeah. Even though he is, he's not as cynical as the rest. He is the optimist out of the group, but he's still a cynical, lazy man. But he does a nice thing for a stranger because the opportunity presents itself. Yeah. He's a humanist and a humanitarian. All the things you'd want a last human to be, right? Yeah, in this regard, Lister is the internet in that he is the best and worst of humanity in the same place. <laughs> Talking of internet, where can people find you? Um, I'm still on what remains of Twitter. Who knows how long that'll maintain? You can find me at Paul Foxcroft 
I'm on Instagram at Mr. Spiderguard. That's M-I-S-T-E-R Spiderguard. I also do a show called Questing Time, which is in a period of transition uh, between media. Uh, but you can find me tweeting about that at Questing Time. You can find us on Instagram at Questing Time Comedy. Or also on Twitch. We have a, a huge backlog of comedians playing Dungeons & Dragons stuff on Twitch. Also, if you if you if you're dedicated to it, I'm I live I live in my house. Um, if you can, if you can get in, well done. Well, if, yeah, listener, if you know where Paul lives, give him a knock. See how he responds. Paul Foxcroft. That's four for four now, and another really really interesting viewpoint. Again, I know I said it to him, and he actually, I I, I think I got away with it when he asked me what I actually meant. By having my mind changed, I, I said a thing, but it wasn't just that—not <laughs> just the the intellect of the crew. It's also the attitude towards law, and I think that's why it's really interesting to get a DM in, someone who actually mm. builds worlds and scaffolds stories for you know tabletop RPGs like like Dungeons and Dragons. Knows about law. He knows about law that lasts, and he knows about law that that a writer kind of throws in as a bit of flavour, but doesn't necessarily want to come back to or follow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the surprising bit. I've always yes. assumed any law that goes into the show is there to be followed and thought about, but clearly not. It's just nah. it's just laughs, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he he investigated the episode like a crime, <laughs> and I, I don't I don't think he found a smoking gun, but Grant and Naylor have definitely done some wrong. I like to think they'll be exonerated. <laughs> Well, yeah, because they didn't think they were doing wrong at the time. Exactly. And doesn't that count in, in law? I think I said something about, clearly, it was never meant to be doing anything. This, You know, it was just for laughs, right? They weren't trying to do something deep or, you know, use comedy as a vehicle to explore religion. It was just, a, arguably, it's a subplot of the episode. It's not even really the main thrust of it, is it? It's just kind of there, like a lot of cat stuff in this series. But... You know, I don't think that comedy can't do religion. It, it does religion a lot and often badly, but I think some of the some of the best, like Small Gods by Terry Pratchett, you know, long form, that's what you need. Mm. A bit of, bit of breathing room. You can do really, really interesting and provocative and moving and mind-changing stuff through comedy about religion, but not in a not in a subplot of episode one of a series one of Red Dwarf. It turns out, and that's fine. And not, as as you pointed out, the callousness of the response to religious questions and religious guilt and, and stuff like that, and catastrophe, if, if you have to kind of undermine it for comedy, then you're not you're not exactly encouraging your audience to think that deeply about it. That said, there is a faith thread through this whole episode yes right? there is yeah yeah in just in different subtle ways yeah rimmer's faith in the the quakers exactly right yeah faith yeah that's that's it right belief blind blind belief and and as we've said before about red dwarf any one of these plot lines you could transpose to a drama and it would be yeah. weighty and bleak yes <laughs> you know? yeah gotcha and and Limey O'Reilly, quite quite depressingly, like depressing in terms of the outlook of it. But it's by dint of having Craig Charles as, as Lister as the as the positive voice and Chris Barry as the negative voice that makes it all it's fine. It's all bearable. Yeah, yeah, Funny yeah it's true. We do we witness the the death of uh, the death of a religion here because Cat's not going to be observing, is he? This me- incredibly meaningful thing that sent Cat civilization out into space. We already know that half of them have perished. We don't know what's happened to the other lot yet. Yeah, that's that's deeply weighty and serious, and yet it also comes with uh, with coloured hats and uh, <laughs> the donut diner and all of that stuff. I think the there's a mad thing about that actually. It's not just the religion that's that's died. Cat, as far as we know, is the last cat. Yeah. He was never called the last cat, despite Lister being called the last human. Mm. And it's a similar 
species that's about to, to die out. There's two last things on, 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 on board. But maybe they were just waiting for Series 13. Oh, The Promised Land, the, the equivalent right. of Series Series 13. They knew from Series 1 that they would be getting to Series 13, and that's when they'd come back to the cat. I'd love to think that. I'm not sure they were thinking that far ahead. Do you know, the further into this part of the conversation we get, the, the more I feel like a real modo. Ah, interesting. Because you're only the second person in history to be called that. I think third. I think is it three? Rimmer says it twice right. in this episode. He calls Hollister a modo and then immediately Cat a modo. Uh. And the fact that it comes up twice, this is why I'm bringing it up. It feels like Grant and Naylor trying yeah, they were gonna, a smeg yeah. or a goit out. And they use it twice in one episode. Mm. And then it just doesn't come back anywhere else. It's not. It doesn't have quite the same... It's not as pleasurable to say as it as smeg or goit or gimboid modo. It's just a bit, it's a bit of vanilla as a made-up insult i think you're right maybe that's it it's purely the aesthetic of it that doesn't work it's got that sci-fi it's got that like pg rating sci-fi thing of oh let's take a real thing like mofo and just change a letter yeah like frack on babylon frack before no not babylon 5 it's uh battlestar galactica isn't it yeah yeah. i i love i love that they attempt the world building i love that they attempt the law i know uh, again paul kind of decried it a little bit in terms of it being no they wanted to try stuff out and it was funny at the moment but they didn't have to they didn't necessarily know that they were going to come back to mm. it. As he said, these were people waiting to... They didn't know if they were even getting a Series 2. Exactly, yeah. Right? So all the stuff they're putting in is for us now, watching that specific episode. However, I, I, I still love it. I still love that they tried Modo. I still love that Rimmer tried your big leg. Ah, yes. Or whatever he was trying to say to, to Todd Hunter in episode one in the, in the end. Yeah, because you get a moment unlike any other that's ever been broadcast of... What yeah. was that? And they do, they do, they are good at insults in this thing. They are. They are really good. Novelty condom head. Right, yes. Yes. Mr. Gaspacho. Oh, vicious. <laughs> Hoity toity gonad brained gimp, Rimmer calls the captain. Where are these coming from? There is, okay, so Ganymede and Titan. Wonderful, wonderful sight. They've put together an insult list of, of every insult in Red Dwarf. Amazing. I'm not recalling these. I'm not that good. I'm, I'm looking through this, this massive list. Listicles remember Gwenlin in Crichton. Gwenlin. Oh, I know what that is. That's, that's, I know what that is. That's the um, surname of someone off, like, the production staff or something. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, but they use it as, a, they yeah. use it as an yeah. insult. Yeah, presumably it's like Gosh. an inside joke. Doink. Doink. Disgusting pus-filled bubo. That's better. That's Dingleberry like. breath. Oh, I'm sorry. I've just seen one from... It's one of my favourite episodes anyway. We're getting to it later in the series with Nick Helm. But in, in Me Squared, when Rimmer calls oh, Rimmer gonna say. a dead git. It's wonderful. That's actually, a th- I think we were going to go for the piece of distended rectum there, but dead git is. Well, you'd have superb. thought you disgusting piece of distended rectum because that's the that's the more blackaddery, wordy, clevery, yeah. insulty bit. But actually, it's about that guttural harshness of yeah. the word git is so final. Yeah, dead. And git. if you want to express oh, to someone that you think they're completely pointless, actually, dead git is pretty much the apotheosis of what you can be saying to them. You're absolutely correct. Calling someone a filthy piece of distended rectum is a sign that you still care yeah, about them. Yeah, they infuriate you enough that you're making it. Yeah, you're making yeah. an effort. You hope they can change, but a dead git, I think you've written off. <laughs> That's very true. But Modo, I just Modo is one I, I wanted to mention because 
what on earth? Is it short for Quasimodo or is it Modo oh. Transport? <laughs> Got that last one. <laughs> but, Who knows? I mean, I do. Th- I th- Quasimodo is interesting, isn't it? That would kind of fit with our theories about Smeg and Goit, wouldn't it? In terms of taking bits of something and alluding to yeah. a, like a, a, a visual reference um, of, of how disgusting you find them. But yeah, <laughs> it, equally, it could well be that they just got mofo and changed it, you know, like a sort of bad 1980s TV dub thing. What's the famous lethal weapon with bad mother flippers or something like that? Muddy Funsters. Oh, yeah. Is that Muddy real? Funsters. Muddy Funsters. Fun you, fun you, Muddy Funster. Yeah, that's it. It was, was a big one. Coming back to Gwenlin. So the head of BBC comedy was Gareth Gwenlin and he fell out right. with um, Grant and Naylor after saying you can't have a sitcom in space, there's no city. And after that, they used it as the insult for Crichton. There's no settee? As in, a, really... a comedy has to be based around a sofa? That's how really... lazy, how, unimag- how unambitious. It's <laughs> really narrow, isn't it? I only laugh at things said by people who are sitting down comfortably. Mm. We're British. If not sitting down comfortably, at least leaning on the back of the comfortable thing. Yeah, although having said that, uh, like that, and you could have put a settee in it. Well, you, stupid. You could, but do you know what? <laughs> what a Gwenlin. What subsequently, within like five years of that comment, would have gone on to become the biggest global sitcom smash of all time? Friends, sofas up the wazoo. So maybe they have a sofa in front of a fountain. They have a sofa in a coffee shop. Exactly. They have sofas galore yeah. in their flats. You can't move for sofas in Friends, and Gwenlin. When and saw it coming. Right. So sofas are the catalyst to sitcom success. Exactly. That's... That said, counterpoint, which show is still running? Red Dwarf. <laughs> so who's had the last laugh? Oh, it's still the Friends guys, I think. Yeah, probably. They're super rich. I, I, I wonder if a lot of listeners aren't going to email us. <clears throat> a lot of listeners. I wonder if our listener isn't going to email us <laughs> and say, you guys are really overthinking this. Mm. I'll ask him. These jokes are... These are jokes. The The... the, the the unfortunate suicide business thing. Right. Is it, yeah. It's just a joke. Yeah. It's just a joke. Cat saying, I don't care. Your father ate his own, that's why he ate his own feet. These, I think they're just jokes. They probably, I don't think yeah. we're supposed to be going, but what if, what if a person actually said this in real life? That'd be awful, wouldn't it? But like, yeah, that's, that's, I guess that's kind of one way of describing a certain type of joke. It's true. I mean, I guess my response to that would be, what are you looking for from this podcast? If not, <laughs> Something some real overthinking. Lines. Yeah. Some, yes. some deep over-analysis. You can see how long it is. It's the fourth episode. <laughs> it's not one of the most popular ones. I can't believe you chose to start here, unless you're a hardcore Dungeons & Dragons fan, and that's brought you here, which is not impossible. Yeah, Questing Time fans, Paul Foxcroft fans. But, uh, yeah, what do you want to see from the podcast? Why not email us? Why not? That's a, Yeah, that's a really good point. Please do email us. Better than life pod at gmail.com. We're always... In the inbox, keeping an eye out. We are with with like like a like a teenager in the eighties sitting next to the phone, waiting for the hunk to call. We are <laughs> staring at our inbox every day. While you're at it, it'd be amazing if you could rate and review this podcast positively. Please subscribe where you can. Those yeah. things really do make a difference to the algorithm. Mm. This time of year, the algorithms are in real need of. Stars, five stars, please. please. There's no, there's no point please otherwise. Give generously. If it's if it's a five star, if it's five stars, give us the review. If it's one star or four stars or three or any any other number of stars than five, email us instead, and then we'll talk you out of it. <laughs> yeah, well, by the time you've read our full and robust response, mm, exactly. we'll be back up to five stars. Yes. Don't you worry about that. Yes.
Right, well, that's enough comprehensive analysis of Waiting for God because we've got a new episode to make room for next week. It's Series 1, Episode 5, Confidence and Paranoia, with a very, very special guest. Mr. Matt Blair. Matt Blair, yes. Matt Blair, Confidence Paranoia, amazing episode, amazing guest. I can't wait. We'll see you there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.